Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I created Data Mesh Radio to be a resource for Data Mesh practitioners the world over. This is a weekly summary episode where I share a bit about the upcoming week's episodes and give you an extended summary for any interviews or panels that will be released during that week. It's designed to help you decide what episodes you might want to spend the full time to listen to, as interview episodes and panels are typically more than one hour long. In general, if you were running up against any challenges with Data Mesh, I'm here to help. I started a company around doing just that, Data Mesh Understanding. So get in touch if I can be of help. Check out our free community programs and things like that as well. Weekly episode summaries and programming notes for the week of July 9th, 2023. We actually did the first of the roundtables this last week, and it was pretty intimate affair, you know, just a few people, but it was actually really fun. It, it is looking like we'll do them weekly on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. CEST, sorry, and 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So sorry for not listing all the time zones, but World Time Buddy is your friend for converting, <laughs> you know, 6.30 p.m. CEST and 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, feel free to ping me or Jean-Georges Perrin for an invite to those going forward. I think they're going to be kind of a fun little thing to try and get people back into the swing of having a lot more one-on-one conversations. So what's on tap for this week? On Monday, we have episode 238, Bringing Software Testing Best Practices to Data, which is an interview with Sophia Tania, who just goes by Tania, um, who's at ThoughtWorks. And I asked her on because she had done a really great um, presentation back in 2021 even about, uh, I've been trying to chase her for a long time, about um data testing best practices and things she did, you know, how do we bring software testing to data? And it's something that I think a lot of people really, really need to kind of consider. So, you know, we have to bring those practices to data, but we should do it smartly and not make the same mistakes we made in software. Let's let's start from a leveled up position where we don't go, okay, we're going to do this testing paradigm, which we know doesn't really scale, doesn't really work. But you know, okay, we're going to do that to data. That's kind of how a lot of data contract work is, is going right now. Schmack has said the same thing as, as, as Tanya. The question kind of becomes how, you know, but looking at how practices evolved in software should bring us a lot of learnings as to, okay, where are we likely to make the mistakes and, and where can we jump over those? This episode is all about driving quality and trust, right? Testing engenders trust. Not just catching mistakes and prevention of issues, it shows that there's care. It shows that somebody cares that this is going to go well and that you're actually kind of, uh, that that if something does come up, there's somebody who's actually going to jump in and go, oh, okay, 
and fix the tests going forward and things like that. So I think it's a really interesting thing about quality and trust um, and how that all flows through when you're doing comprehensive testing. Um, And I will say that nobody's probably all that advanced on this right now. So if you're not the most advanced, that's totally fine. Nobody else is. On Friday, we have episode 239, which is a panel, The Role of Data Product Management in Data Mesh. This was led by Franny Helferouche with Ala Hale and Jill Maffeo. So they're all data product managers, and we it was just a really fun conversation. There were so many good takeaways from this one, but it's such also a nascent space. It's really inspiring to listen to this one, but also a little frightening because things really are so unsettled in the world of data product management. But that means if you aren't 100% on lock with your practices at your organization, it sounds like no one is, right? It's kind of like the software testing. No one's really doing this very well in data. We can learn and tweak a ton from software or other product management practices, but we still have to discover so many more and, and figure out how we do them well for data. It's also just a really fun conversation with three awesome women, so I think you'll enjoy it. Now, on to the extended summary for Tanya's episode, as well as the panel. Just a quick reminder, the extended summaries for the panels are quite long. I think this one is 17, 18 minutes. So, <laughs> you know, maybe just read the the bullet points in the show notes when that comes out, or if you want to listen to it, you know, you can listen to me read through all of those. Extended summary for episode 238, Bringing Software Testing Best Practices to Data, an interview with Sophia Tania. So in this episode, I interviewed Sophia Tania, but she goes by Tania, so that's what I'll refer to her going forward, who is a tech principal at ThoughtWorks. To be clear, she was only representing her own views on the episode. I asked her to be on, especially because of a presentation she had done on applying testing, which is especially important for data contracts, in data mesh. She'd put that out in uh, 2021. And then also just a personal note on this episode, I was apparently getting really sick throughout the call. So I might ramble a bit at the end of the actual interview episode. There's more information about some some stuff like that in the uh, show notes. So Tanya started with a bit of, of her background, especially related to data mesh. She worked for two plus years as the lead on the technical side of a data mesh implementation at a ThoughtWork client. You know, and it was one of the clients, if not kind of the main one, which was the inspiration for Jamak's original data mesh blog posts. Tanya's background as a developer and tech generalist have shaped her thoughts around bringing good software practices to data. For Tanya, the reason she originally put together the presentation on software testing practices in data was a client question. And this is kind of a paraphrase of it. But If we already have data quality issues in the centralized setup around our data with clear ownership and people who really know data, how the heck are we going to improve data quality by pushing data ownership into the domains, right? And I think that's a very fair question. Just pushing ownership without the capability and buy-in to own the data is possibly or likely probably 
going to lead to worse data quality. So we need tests that work and can be shown to data consumers to help ensure quality and trust in that data quality, right? That people can actually feel like they can rely on it. Showing people your kind of data quality certification or whatever goes a long way towards trust. In Tanya's view, much of the existing data observability tooling and practices, while valuable, only really alert when there is already a problem with data that's hit production. Is there a way where we can shift testing left? Not just in kind of the ownership shifting less, but testing earlier in the flow of data, right? Earlier in the development timeline of a data product too. So that is three potential ways to shift left, to test earlier, you know, by with the domain and by earlier in the timeline and earlier in the flow of the data. Think about detect versus protect. Can we prevent data quality issues instead of only better identify and resolve them, right? Protecting is preventing. Detecting is just this has happened. Tanya talked about how data product producers need to start to shift their thinking around data quality. What specifically do my consumers want and why? Quality is inherently subjective in data, so extract from them what their needs are and look to serve those needs. And we should stop, or we should look to stop using only lagging indicators around data quality like surveys. Surveys are valuable in reshaping what SLAs should be for a, a data product and is, you know, that data product me- meeting needs and expectations. Those SLAs, you know, the surveys are certainly not designed to quickly detect issues. So do consumers actually know what they want? to make that kind of data high quality for them is another question. Consumer-driven data quality testing is a good idea for many reasons in Tanya's view. When we think about a single data product having five known regular data consumers, does the data producer need to develop five different sets of data tests to specifically protect against breaking changes or issues specific to each use case? Do they have to define quality metrics differently for each use case of the same data product? Do they have to be so familiar with each use case that they can evolve their tests as the use cases evolve themselves? How much can we reasonably ask the data product consumers to do in the testing space to ensure quality, right? I don't know how much we can really uh, ask the, the producers as well. Tanya admitted, though, that she hasn't led a client in doing consumer-driven testing for data. It's really hard to get data testing right in general. Are people really ready for doing consumer-driven data testing, which is even kind of harder because it's, it's typically the people don't know the data quite as well. We don't really have the tooling or the general best practices to do it well yet. And there's also just philosophical pushback. Being forced to programmatically say what good quality means instead of, you know, the data quality isn't good enough is a tough pill to swallow for some consumers. Do consumers really know precisely what they want? Things like the tools of great expectations or soda core that that Tanya had mentioned are a good start, but we need more. And many consumers are still in that kind of mindset of give me all the data you have. So they want to just shift, you know, sort through it themselves. So reducing the possible scope of the data they get is not an easy mindset shift where you say, tell me only what you need and why you need it. And they're like, well, just give it, 
everything to me. It's you're going to have some pushbacks and back and forth. Tanya also pointed to a persistent challenge in data that is a chicken and egg problem. Data producers can't build exactly what consumers want until they get some feedback from the data consumers. But the consumers don't know exactly what they want until they've seen an early iteration of the data product and said, oh, I like this, or can we change this in this way, or, or you know, really getting a little bit of feedback as well from the actual information that flows through. So you have this lengthening time between data product conception to release because both sides need more from the other to move forward, but they can't until they get at least some information. Again, chicken and egg. A good way to press on consumers might be to ask them about bad case scenarios. What has to be there and why? Like, what would be really bad if it were missing? That will possibly prevent these kitchen sink feature requests. As the conversation transitioned into low-code, no-code tooling, Tanya lamented about the difference between ease of use and simplicity. While low-code, no-code tools can be very easy to use at the start, as you know, scale and complexity of use cases increases, they often become extremely difficult to manage. They're focused on ease of use. Their architecture isn't about maintaining simplicity of managing the solution as it scales. As you add more and more views, you might actually have 30 to 40 joins across many data product views or whatever, and performance comes to just a halt. This was also mentioned in the ThoughtWorks radar that was released around the time of our recording in early May of of 2023, and Tanya had also contributed to that radar, which I think might be why it showed up uh, in a lot of the same terms that she was talking about here. In wrapping up, Tanya shared what she believes is a good way to measure if you are doing well enough with your data product, especially in regards to data quality. Look at your SLOs, your service level objectives, and your SLIs, your service level indicators. Are you hitting those regularly? Are you hitting your SLIs regularly? Then if you are, maybe you can focus on new feature development around your data product. But if not, you might need more better monitoring, you know, or an observability because your data quality isn't where it needs to be. You need to focus on upping your quality before you focus on new features. Ended summary for episode 239, a panel, the role of data product management in data mesh, led by Franny Helferouche with Alla Hale and Jill Maffeo. Quick reminder that extended summaries for panels go through a lot. This one has 29 of takeaway bullet points and are they're quite long, right? So in this episode, guest host Franny Helferouche, technical product manager slash data product manager at RBC Global Asset Management and guest of episode 230, facilitated a discussion with Alla Hale, Senior Data Product Manager, Digital Capabilities at Ecolab, guest of episode 122, and Jill Maffeo, Senior Data Product Manager at Vista, and guest of episode 151. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. 
This top, the topic for this panel was broadly data product management and the role of the data product manager in a data mesh implementation. Data product manager is still a very nascent role, so there is still a lot of confusion around it. If I were to sum up the feeling of the conversation very succinctly, it would be simply, it's early days, have some patience. As usual, I wanted to share my takeaways rather than trying to reflect the nuance of the panelists' views individually. So I've got my top eight takeaways, and then I've got 21 more. So number one, the role of the data product manager is pretty wide-ranging. It's easy to get overwhelmed and not focus on what really matters. We have to be patient as we learn best practices around data product management because it's still a nascent space. Number two, it's crucial to focus on who the user of a data product will be, whether that is an intermediate user kind of creating a report for another or someone directly consuming from the data product. It's very easy to lose sight of what is the exact use case and how will people use the data product to actually consume their information. Data for the sake of data is just expensive ones and zeros. Number three, there isn't even a common understanding of what a data product is, no standard definition. So data product management is even tougher to define in many ways. It is still a very emerging practice, so everyone is still figuring it out. It's okay if things are a bit messy and muddled, right? It's not just you. They are for everyone else. Number four, because there isn't really a, a tangible use, you know, UI user interface or even the user experience is a bit muddled around what is a data product, you know, so there isn't really a tangible UI to a data pr uh, product. It's really hard to have a good understanding of the boundaries of a data product. People don't have, you know, a day-to-day -day life experience uh, of working with data products because, you know, they do with all these other products, whether it's digital or physical, there's something that you interact with, which is not really the, the, <laughs> the way a data product exists. So you have to have some patience as people figure it out, both on the data product management side and on the consumer side. Number five, there are a ton of learnings we can bring from physical and digital software product management to data products. Some things only need small tweaks to work well, but be prepared for lots of trial and error. So make more room for experimentation than you would in, in software, right? And I don't think people are, are really leaving any room for experimentation in general. Number six, what is a data product team or is there a data product team is a question every organization has to ask. Is there a separate team that's focused on these data products themselves? And the answer for each organization probably evolves too. At first, what I'm seeing is as you're figuring out how to build and manage data products and your platform is still immature, you probably have a team that is specific to a data product or data products. But eventually, for many data products or domains, there will likely simply be a data product developer. There isn't like a full team around this. And that person is just part of the product team or, or data product development um, you know, in general, it will be part of the general team's developer duties and product management around that gets a bit fuzzier. So I think what I'm seeing is most people start out with a team around, you know, this is my team for this data product. And then as capabilities increase and as understanding increases, the amount of effort to do a data product decreases and maybe it just kind of gets folded into the general software team's duties. Because, you know, data is just one aspect of software engineering at the end of the day. Number seven, 
product marketing is a relatively foreign concept in data products, but it seems there needs to be far more interaction with existing and potential users of a data product to add value to existing use cases and create new use cases. As of now, that responsibility, unfortunately, probably falls on the data product manager. And number eight of my top take, my last of my top takeaways, the best path to developing a very valuable data product is the consuming stakeholder, their engagement. If the consumer isn't engaged, if they aren't giving the necessary information to really develop the data product to solve a use case, consumption seems to be below expectations across every org I'm seeing. If you just kind of create data and put it on the shelf, it's not really uh, kind of getting pulled off the shelf all that much. So here are my other 21 takeaways that I think are really important, but maybe aren't my top takeaways. So number one, you know, user experience or UX is such a crucial, crucial part of essentially all product management. How does that play in data products? Is it on the platform team to create the UX and the data products just plug into the UX? Is that just the user interface? How do documentation, number and types of APIs, interoperability slash interconnectivity to other data products, et cetera. How do all those factor in? Number two, we need more adoption of forward-thinking, forward-leaning product management practices in data. Instead of only being reactionary to requests, how are we going to extract what people want next? How do we find those use cases that are of value and still get those people to lean in instead of just say, hey, would you like some data? Because people just say yes, even if it's not going to be really of value to them. Number three, data products are so new and so many people have preconceived notion of what the phrase should mean or does mean. Be prepared for lots of work on alignment just around the definition of what is a data product. Number four, be prepared for friction when introducing good software product management practices to data. Many data people aren't used to really interacting with product management or product managers even at, at all. So they will require some time and hand-holding. Number five, getting buy-in for the budget to put together, you know, to put the proper amount of data product management or managers in place might be, I, I put in my notes, a little difficult. It's probably going to be a lot of difficult, right? Especially when you start to ask where that budget comes from. Make sure to have these conversations early in your journey and adjust as needs arise, but you need to think about putting in a proper layer of data product management or it's just going to be data product chaos. Number six, similarly, a common theme or a common issue in software product management is a product manager is too overloaded to talk to customers or potential customers. That's even more likely to happen in data product management, it seems, if you aren't really careful. Really focus on making sure there is enough time for that kind of product discovery, not data discovery, but product discovery, like what should be developed, or you will be doing development by request only, and that's we've seen that's the way that data has worked and it really just doesn't drive nearly as much value as it could. Number seven, defining data product success metrics broadly and then specifically for each data product is going to be a struggle. Usage is an indicator, but not comparable across data products, for instance. That doesn't even get into the challenge of then measuring this, the success metrics themselves, right? But you just have to start and starting with mediocre metrics is better than not starting at all. 
Number eight, how the heck do we think about A-B testing relative to data and data products? Do we have enough consumers to test? What does it even mean to A-B test data or a data product or a data product interface? Or it's This is a really, really confusing question. I, I think it's one that we'll come back to in, in eight years is about how long it'll take before we're ready to start talking about A-B testing around data, not just getting data around A-B tests. Number nine, similarly, experimentation is key to doing data better. But can we experiment around the data itself? Are we just going to, are we just using data to power and measure experimentation? Maybe experimentation around interfaces to data? I just, again, I don't know. Number 10, data products have a life cycle. If you are unsure of the value of a data product to users and you can't really get them to articulate it, sometimes shutting down the data product, at least temporarily, to do the did anyone scream test is going to be the right call. Number 11, it's crucial to balance long-term product sustainability with time to market. As you learn more about building data products, many organizations are seeing decreasing time to market, right, of a new data of new data products, but especially at the start of a data mesh journey, it is really easy to create non-sustainable, non-maintainable products to match requests instead of kind of needs in a productized way. Um, Jamak and some of our, our conversations have talked about, you know, with one of their, their clients when she was at ThoughtWorks, they went from, you know, two months to create a data product to, if it was a relatively simple one, an hour or two, like sometimes minutes, to get something in the hands of somebody. It wasn't necessarily the finished product, but it was to get an alpha into their hands, you know, almost at the end of the meeting when you started having a meeting. And so you can get there, but only if you if you have the the discipline to not try and rush at the very beginning. Number 12, we can create data products that answer questions that, you know, kind of should be asked, but should we? Right? Should we say this is what people should be asking so I'm going to create this ahead of time? If we are sharing insights that are not ready to be leveraged, or are not what the stakeholders care about, what will adoption be like? Thus far, it seems like most data mesh implementers are saying adoption is below expectations for proactive data products not created to specific stakeholder-defined use cases. Hopefully that changes as we increase data literacy, but it's important to consider. Number 13, it's crucial to consider interoperability and cross-domain usage slash queries as part of your potential user flow but it's also very hard to try to map uh, ahead when you're, you aren't sure of those use cases. We can easily lock ourselves in and reduce flexibility, which then might become like a data warehouse, just kind of micro warehouses everywhere. Number 14, it will be interesting to see where data product managers come from. They come from traditional product management. They have to learn a lot of the hidden nuances of data. But coming from data, it's easy to get too tied into the data work instead of what is the data product supposed to do? What is it supposed to power? It's not supposed to be about the data. It's supposed to be about the information flow that allows somebody to do something. Number 15, Figuring out where data product management reports will be important for organizations. It could be into the data team, it could be into product org, into the domain, or maybe even the, the CTO, you know, kind of software and just in general. There are definitely puts and takes to each. Personally, I think they should start reporting into the data org 
and eventually move to being part of the product org or reporting into the domain itself because data ownership and data products are just a part of a domain's mandate, right? But then you look at how does product management actually work. A lot of times it's into a product org just so that the, there's a more holistic view of kind of all the products in the organization. Number 16, Franny asked a great question. Should the data product manager own the data product strategy? And what even is a data product strategy? I feel like the answer is just kind of, yes, they should own the data product strategy. But that data product strategies will be very immature as people learn how to build and manage data products. And you start to think about who should own the overall strategy across all data products. Like, how do I think about my mesh of data products strategy? And is that my same thing as my data mesh strategy? Probably not. There's, it, it's just layered and layered. Number 17, it all starts from the user and use case. To build a good data product, you need to understand how people are going to use it. But then, are we building one-off instead of universally usable data products? I think you start from a use case and build out. Expand out, but maintain as much flexibility as possible. Number 18, product discovery, the process of finding out what products you should build and what are useful features to add to those, is really important in product management. But it's far more challenging in data because everyone always says yes to, do you want more data? How can you determine what will be used and valued? Where is a real use case versus a, that would be nice to have kind of thing? Number 19, Data product management should extend into what data do we want, what incremental data should we generate, not only what data do we have. As Stephen Galsworthy talked about in his episode, especially with hardware, you often don't get to change what info you are collecting. Data sourcing is going to be a part of data product management, right? Like, what data do you need to go and collect? Number 20, maybe good data product marketing is just being highly available and willing to explain, you know, having office hours and show and tells and letting people know some data exists and then if they want to use it, they're coming to you. If trying to generate new use cases from unengaged potential users isn't driving great value, maybe it's all about kind of that inbound marketing, not outbound. I don't know. And finally, number 21, much of the value in data mesh is cross-domain use cases, and that value is captured by combining information from different data products. But it seems we are still early days in figuring out how to communicate some of the potential questions out there to design good data products to answer them. Hopefully it sounds like some awesome episodes for you coming up this week. As a reminder, feel free to get in touch if I might be useful in your data mesh journey, helping quite a few organizations and introducing people to each other, plus doing some roundtables. Check out datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. Now on to that fun, funky little outro music.